Welcome to Smarty Pants, the podcast of the American Scholar Magazine, sponsored by Phi Beta Kappa. I'm your host, Stephanie Bastek. For all the glue vine and good cheer, mid-December also marks the darkest part of the year, when families around the world gather to watch their favorite holiday ghost story, A Christmas Carol. Easily the most famous spooky Yuletide movie, it is by no means the only one. Black Christmas was arguably the first American slasher movie. The mischievous creatures from Gremlins squealed their way into many hearts in 1984, and the Alpine Krampus has more credits to his name than Santa has reindeer. For generations, in fact, the heart of winter, and not Halloween, was when we told unsettling stories around the fire, whether they featured the ghosts of our own pasts or Grilla the Icelandic ogre and her evil Yule cat. This week, writer and director Kayla Janice offers a primer on how these stories have found their way onto the screen, from annual BBC television specials to big-budget Hollywood bloodbaths. Janice is the co-editor of Yuletide Terror and the author of House of Psychotic Women, an autobiographical topography of female neurosis in horror and exploitation films, and the director of the documentary Woodlands Dark and Days Bewitched, a thorough history of folk horror. Thank you so much for talking to me, Kayla. Thanks for having me on. So when did your relationship with horror movies begin? Oh, that would have been, I mean, that's as far back as I can remember <laughs> since childhood. I mean, my earliest memories are watching horror films. Uh, it was some, my parents really liked horror films. And so it was kind of like a quality time thing that we did. And, um, and then when I, you know, expressed a really strong interest in horror as a kid, they would encourage it by, you know, my dad would cut out articles from the paper about horror hosts or whatever. Like, I, you know, he'd buy me vampire books at the flea market or monster books, you know. So it was something that I became interested in really early on. And my parents just, yeah, they just went with it. Were you always aware that there were Christmas or holiday horror movies out there? Or was it something of like a later revelation? Because it, I love horror. It just took me years before I even realized it was a thing. I mean, I definitely remember uh, like key films like Silent Night, Deadly Night, Christmas Evil, you know, New Year's Evil, which, you know, is adjacent to Christmas. Um, so, I mean, I remember these films because they were coming out in the late 70s and early 80s when I was a kid. But I don't I definitely didn't realize how many of them there were until years later when I was doing a book <laughs> called Yuletide Terror about Christmas horror films. And I was trying to make something semi comprehensive that had capsules of everything. And there's like hundreds of movies in it. And there were still more being made as I was like finishing the book. And there still have been tons more made since I finished the book. So it really is a a very robust subgenre of horror. I mean, Yuletide Horror was the only book specifically about holiday horror that I could find when I was looking. Could you talk about what made it into the book? Like, give us a little bestiary. There's all kinds of these classic stories that take place on Christmas that are dealing with either, you know, a killer Santa or dealing with, you know, something that's taking advantage of the dysfunctional family environment of a Christmas gathering um, and, you know, some intruder in the house. 
there's a lot of folklore, folkloric monsters around Christmas. And there's many of those, you know, like if you go around the world, there's all kinds of variations on Santa Claus, you know, like Krampus or whatever, uh, La Bifana, which is like the Italian witch of Christmas. There's like the Yule cat in Iceland, you know, so folklore is also full of these kind of like Christmas characters that are rife for uh, making film adaptations out of. Um, but then you also have in the United Kingdom, for instance, this very interesting tradition that we wanted to have included in the book. Um, ghost stories for Christmas has always been a very strong tradition in the UK. So this goes back to like oral storytelling and it goes back even, it, it goes back to like, you know, winter's tales centuries ago, the idea that people would gather around the fire and would tell creepy stories and stuff. This this tradition is centuries old, but in the UK, it was very associated with winter, with Christmas. And so for a long time, uh, Christmas was really the season in the UK that was associated with ghost stories more than Halloween. And so they have in the UK seasonal Christmas programming every year that usually starts about the middle of December. And the BBC would either on radio or on television would make these sort of classic ghost stories for Christmas, but they weren't uh, Christmas themed. And so this was the, this is the, was the hard thing for the book is that for UK audiences, if you didn't include those movies in the book, People would be like, where are these movies? You know, but for American audiences, it, we knew it was going to be hard for them to understand why these movies were in the book when they had nothing to do with Christmas. And so a lot of times it's really it's like the context and the atmosphere in which those movies were commissioned and made. Um, the purpose that they were made for is is the connection to Christmas. And so. We wanted to include those films, too, but we have like a big contextual essay about them, like why they're there. So it really runs the gamut of, of everything. We even have short films in there, anthology horror. So like a lot of the TV shows like Twilight Zone or Monsters or Tales from the Dark Side. You know, whenever I used to mentor, you know, filmmakers and stuff and they would ask me, you know, advice, I'd always be like, make a Christmas <laughs> horror film because it will just get it will get played every year somewhere you know there's just tons and tons of them yeah I started with your essay about the ghost story for Christmas series that the BBC did um and I was I got my boyfriend to watch two of the episodes with me and he like midway through the first one it took him that long but midway through the first one he was like where's Christmas what does this have to do with Christmas but I have to say like they've stuck with me it was at least, you know, two weeks ago that I watched these and I'm still sort of thinking about it in the atmosphere. Like, what do you think made those so special? Because they are still beloved. Uh, I mean, they were made by a director named Lawrence Gordon Clark. And he pitched the BBC in the early 70s on making a adaptation of an M.R. James story. And M.R. James was a scholar and a writer of horror short fiction. Uh, and he would typically sort of write these stories to tell his students on Christmas, on, on right at Christmas break, as the students were about to go home for Christmas break, he would gather everybody around the fire at the school where he taught uh, and tell them these ghost stories. And then he would publish them in, in books as collections and stuff. And so there'd been a very 
popular adaptation of one of his stories called Whistle and I'll Come to You, which was made for the BBC uh, for their omnibus program in 1968. And it was so popular uh, that Lawrence Gordon Clark got the idea of doing a Christmas series around the writing of M.R. James, of like specifically adaptations of his stories. And so he started it with one, which was the Stalls of Barchester. They had to see how it went before they would know if they wanted to continue with it or not as a tradition. But the Stalls of Barchester was this just very dark amazing story but it's also dark because they shot the whole thing by candlelight you know um and so they're like shooting these films in 16 millimeter you know they're very low budget but they do a lot with with mood and atmosphere and tone um and so they come from the mind of this very celebrated horror author because mr james was kind of like a stephen king type of writer in the uk you know he's just very good at telling a creepy tale and the spare budgets i think of lawrence gordon clark's series really suited mr james's uh, stories and so the stalls of barchester did really well and then they continued the next year with a warning for the curious um and I think the next year after that was funny because it was this one called Lost Hearts. And a lot of the people I know my age who are British remember seeing it as children um, because these ghost stories for Christmas, uh, you know, would often play at like midnight on Christmas Eve. Um, but it was still considered like a family thing. The whole family would gather around and watch them, even though they were like these terrifying <laughs> stories that traumatized the kids. But in in Lost Hearts, the main characters are children, you know, so that one was a particular one that a lot of people I knew really remembered from childhood because there were child protagonists in the story. But yeah, I think it was just, uh, there's also just something about that era in British television. It was just kind of a dark era. The, the BBC was producing a lot of great horror content for TV in that decade, especially kind of like child, you know, child-friendly horror. And so I think that, you know, it's partially the people who came of age as those shows were playing are now people like Mark Gaddis, who has taken over the reigns of doing the ghost stories for Christmas every year for the BBC um, and Reese Shearsmith, you know, who does inside number nine, the TV show um, that, you know, it's an anthology show there that often has a Christmas special episode. So it's like people who grew up with these shows are now the creators. They are now the people who are making decisions at, at networks and things. And so these, these stories live on through them, I think also. Yeah, I think what's what makes them effective, too, is even though they're not really like folk horror, there are elements of that in at least the episodes I watched. And I don't know, that's one of my favorite genres. And I think that the British are especially good at it. Yeah. Can you talk about like some of your favorite folk horror movies? There was a ghost story for Christmas Lawrence Gordon Clark made. I think it was in 1978. And it was the first episode that he made or the first installment that he made that was not a period story so it was not an adaptation of mr james it was not an adaptation of dickens as i think the like fifth one was um so it was the first time he had like a contemporary story that was like written specifically for the series and it was called stigma 
And it is a story about a family that moves to this house in the country. And they are, uh, you know, they they moved to this area. It was filmed near Avebury in the UK, which is a very famous village with a circle of standing stones. It's like the whole village is like in the middle of, of this circle. And it's very uh, powerful uh, place. And so... In the, in the movie, this family moves to this house just on the outskirts of that village, and there's a standing stone in their backyard, and they get the construction workers to move it out of the way. And, of course, as soon as they lift this stone out of the ground, there's some big sort of, like, wind that comes up. And um, I'm trying to figure out how to talk about this without any sort of spoilers, but it has an effect on the mother, you know, in the house. Um and so she spends the rest, most of the rest of the movie in the bathroom trying to hide something that's happening to her. Um, and I loved it for so many reasons. Like one, it's a very strong sort of folk horror warning, you know, admonition, you know, like the standing stones, you can't disrupt the standing stones. But also this idea of a, of a woman like being hiding in the bathroom, trying to like hide something from her family. Um, to me was something I felt like a lot of female audiences could relate to this idea of like some unspeakable thing that's happening to you and you have to hide in the bathroom. <laughs> um, at the time it was not well received because people were really upset that he didn't stick to like period stories that were like set in older eras. But I think nowadays it's much more appreciated. I think it's sort of gone through a reappraisal and people really like that episode now. Um, but so that's definitely a favorite of mine. Um, Rare Exports I love because it takes uh, this very real, um, well, there's kind of like this rivalry really between these two towns in Finland over who gets to claim that it's the the, the hometown of Santa Claus. Um, but, you know, everybody agrees Finland is where Santa Claus actually comes from. There's, you know, a mountain and, of course, it's being mined because a lot of times these stories, especially when you're dealing with folk horror, you're dealing with some sort of environmental disruption, you know. Um, and so, yeah, so they're mining on this like big mountain and Santa Claus is loom rumored to be buried in that mountain. But what people don't know is that because of all the, you know, the way that the legends have changed over time, uh, this very jolly version of St. Nicholas is not actually what's buried in this mountain, you know, and it's a much more monstrous figure that has all kinds of minions. Um, and so it's a very cool story because it's like, A, it's a coming of age story. It's like set in this sort of like underserved region, like on the border of the Laplands in Finland. Um, there's like class issues. All these issues are about, you know, something that's really common in Christmas movies is this struggle of, of money. You know, it's, it's a really common thing in Christmas movies for people to not be able to afford Christmas presents for people and for that to be like a big dilemma. Um, and so they have to like learn the real meaning of Christmas is it about presents. And so a lot of times these, the, the Christmas horror films will bring people together um, to overcome all, all these attitudes and stereotypes about Christmas, you know, and I think that's one of the big things that they impart is that, you know, Christmas has so much baggage around it, but this monster suddenly appearing is a thing that binds the family together 
and there's like Michael Doherty's version of Krampus is very similar to came out in like 2015 I think but that version of Krampus it's got like Tony Collette plays the mother and like part of her family comes over and they're stuck together during a power blackout and they all hate each other um, and then having to like fight this Krampus it brings the family together and so Christmas movies kind of across the board whether they're horror or not tend to always have this moral about the true meaning of Christmas, <laughs> you know, which is that it's not presents, it's not money, it's, it's, uh, you know, it's like charity and sacrifice and giving and things like this, and kindness. And even the horror movies have have those same lessons. So for genre fans, it's like, they are perfect, because, you know, it's like a way to get your Christmas movie, your, your seasonal fix in, but have it also be tailored to your interests you know Mm -hmm. yeah I mean we cannot not talk about the Santa slasher either which kind Mm -hmm. of fits nicely in here you know you've got um Christmas Evil which I believe kick-started the trend and then Silent Night Deadly Night and then my personal favorite Mm. Dial Code Santa Claus which has some kind of number code Père Noël in the original French, um, which I saw yeah. for the first time last year, which is really fun, which would like did Home Alone before Home Alone. Um, yeah. And this year there's a new one out starring David Harbour, Violent Night. Um, at least from what I can tell of the previews, it's another Santa slasher. He wears a Santa suit. He goes and he shoots people. <laughs> yeah, there's actually two that came out right around the same time. There's Violent Night, and then there's also one... Um, written and directed i think by joe bagos that's called christmas bloody christmas it's interesting because josh miller who's one of the people who made violent night and joe bagos i think are kind of like from the same scene you know of people and they both happen to come out with these killer santa movies the same year but joe bagos's movie is i believe us a, a like a cyborg or like a like an animatronic killer santa what do you think makes it so irresistible like what is it about giving santa claus a knife that makes directors come back to it year after year. I think it's just that really obvious irony, you know, the same as something like John Waters' Serial Mom. There's something about that, like, really peachy keen, white bread, suburban mom, you know, being a serial killer. There's something irresistible about that. And I feel like with figures like Santa, somebody, you know, a character that has, you know, all these stereotypes about him and that people have such fraught relationships with that it's really tempting to to subvert Santa's purpose, you know, in these movies, like horror films in general kind of subvert a lot of things that mainstream movies do, um, even if only temporarily, you know, there's definitely a lot of horror films where they subvert things and then they kind of just go back to the status quo by the end of the movie. Um, But they definitely like to play with attacking people's beloved icons and things like that. And so Santa is, is one of those characters that horror has a lot of fun with. Are there any new twists? on holiday horror that you've seen coming out in the past couple of years that have especially excited you, whether TV or gourd cinema? Um, well, I mean, the remake of Black Christmas um, that was directed by Sophia Takal and written by April Wolf. Um, I really liked that. I know it took a lot of heat. It was so funny because like genre fans were like up in arms about the remake of Black Christmas because they're like, oh, it's so woke and it's so feminist and it's got such a message. Go back to the old Black Christmas. And it's like, uh, have you seen the original Black Christmas? It's got like an abortion subplot and it's like very feminist. But I loved that 
the new Black Christmas had like a diva cup scene in it. You know, you would never have that <laughs> in a movie written by a man, I don't think. So I just liked it because it to me it was like it's like a different movie. You know, it's night and day, the original Black Christmas. Like I'm not gonna compare one against the other, but I really enjoyed some of the ways that the new Black Christmas delved into like toxic campus relationships and stuff, like even more deeply than the original one did, um, more explicitly. And I also just found it a very enjoyable Christmas horror movie on top of that. Mm -hmm. Which I think is true of a lot of horror in general. It's like, you know, it's not necessarily explicitly subversive, but like Mm -hmm. the genre is built on subversion. Yeah, no, definitely. One of the things that the genre is known for really is like often broaching subjects before mainstream cinema is quite ready to do it, you know? So genre films will often be like the first places that some societal ill is criticized, you know, or the first time that certain women's issues are discussed or whatever. Like, I mean, like the Vietnam War, it was it was very early appearing in horror films, took like about four years after the war for them to start making these films. And the same with like the Gulf War, Joe Dante's Homecoming was the first film about the Gulf War. Um, And so those are just a few examples, but it's, but it's often, you know, horror is often cited as, as being able to take those risks and talk about, you know, either societies like sacred cows or the kind of elephant in the room or, you know, the stuff that mainstream, Uh, pop culture isn't quite ready to deal with. Why do you think that is? Like, what makes horror able to transcend those, I guess, taboos? I think it's really because um, less people are paying attention. And I think that's part of why there's been much deeper criticism of the genre in recent years, I think, because more people are paying attention. Um, so I think like often what would happen is, you know, there wasn't a lot of overhead on these films compared to a lot of mainstream films. So the budgets were often lower. You didn't necessarily need star power to sell these films, you know, because horror fans are just like a loyal audience. They will just go see any horror movie, um, which is amazing. They'll just support any horror film. It's like, this is our genre. We'll go see everything, you know? Um, And so you don't actually have to spend a lot on advertising. You don't have to spend a lot on cast, you know, in order to get, make the same revenue. Um, And so because these films were seen as being made at a different tier, sort of budget wise, there wasn't as much invested in them. There wasn't as much anxiety about what would happen if there was like a backlash around the film or if people are uh, offended by the film in some way. Um, Whereas I think that, you know, and, and a lot of times the people paying the most attention to them were like genre press specifically. I think about a decade ago that started to change to where a lot more mainstream press started looking to horror and like recognizing that horror has so much going on and that it's a really meaty genre to write about. And so there's definitely more um, trepidation now, I think, on the behalf of horror writers, directors, producers, etc., than there was about 10 years ago, because there's much more scrutiny now, you know, but for a long time, I think it was, it was, it was a genre that where things just flew under the radar, you know, so they could take a lot of risks because of that. How does it make you feel as someone who's like loved horror before it was cool? I, I often ask myself whether I think the genre has changed 
you know, there's an outsideriness that's lost with the popularization of horror. But at the same time, it would be hypocritical to complain about that because I think, you know, the whole time I was growing up, I mean, for like 40 years of my life, pretty much, I was defending horror. You know, I was ha constantly having to defend it uh, because people thought it was like a worthless genre or a sadistic genre. People just had so many misconceptions about it and about its audience, you know, about like what people got out of horror and why they would want to watch those movies, et cetera. So I felt like I was, it was very exhausting having to like constantly defend these films. Um, and so, you know, they become popular. And now it's, I mean, it's amazing to me as a teenager, if I had known that you'd be able to find like 500 Texas Chainsaw Massacre t-shirts, like at your fingertips <laughs> to order, um, I would have never imagined that it was so hard to find a horror t-shirt when I was a teenager, you know? So I think it's great that people are accepting these films because the main thing it does is it allows for more of them to be made, you know, and it allows for, you know, people to not have to be on the defensive all the time, you know, where people are like, okay, great. You're finally seeing what the rest of us have seen all this time. But I think like anything where, you're really into something much earlier on, you're always going to have this nostalgia for how it was before when it was like a secret handshake or it was harder to find the movies or, you know, I think there's something lost in the accessibility of the movies, which is a stupid thing to complain about because that's what we always wanted. We always wanted the films to be accessible to us, but there's definitely something I miss about having this movie that I've been looking for forever and ever and I order it in the mail and it finally comes like six weeks later or whatever and calling all my friends to come over and watch this movie because that's the new exciting thing that's happening in the neighborhood is that I got this film in the mail, you know, and that just doesn't exist anymore. You know, like that kind of excitement about the films doesn't exist anymore. Like even myself, I have tons of movies now that I haven't even watched because of like the Blu-ray explosion. There is so much content and then you have your streaming services on top of that. And then that has brought back other things like the role of the curator. It has actually made curators more important than they were for a while, I think, because, you know, once you get this explosion of stuff, then people are almost like, OK, now there's everything and I don't even know where to start. And so every time these changes happen, anything negative also brings something positive. And so I think the positive thing that's happened is that programmers and curators have more currency so curate a little list for us. If listeners haven't watched any Christmas horror, any holiday horror, where would you start? Definitely with any version of The Christmas Carol. Uh, I really like the Richard Williams animated one from the early 70s. You know, obviously there's like the Alistair Sim one, which is the most famous one probably. But I do love the Richard Williams animated one. And the sort of classic Silent Night, Deadly Night, Christmas Evil elves which is like a very low budget cheap <laughs> horror movie made in colorado in the late 80s that is very beloved and weird um there is a television episode of the avengers that is one of my favorite christmas things it's called too many christmas trees krampus and rare exports we've mentioned already 
Sint by Dick Moss. Dick Moss is a Dutch filmmaker and he made a horror film version of Sinterklaas, who is like another kind of like folkloric evil Santa character. Um, oh, I cannot remember what it was called, but Tales from the Dark Side had a really great Christmas episode. Um, oh, Black Christmas. I can't believe I forgot to say in the, in the sort of classic ones, Black Christmas. And then, of course, the ghost stories for Christmas, the British ghost stories for Christmas, you know, from the early 70s right up until today. There's actually going to be a new one premiering on the BBC on the 23rd of December. Um, and so it's going to be the middle of the day where I am because I'm on West Coast North American time, but I will be watching that episode. So, um, so yeah, so I get excited just about all the new ones that are being made every year. We have links in the show notes to Kayla Janice's work, including the books Yuletide Terror and House of Psychotic Women, as well as the excellent and extremely thorough documentary Woodlands Dark and Days Bewitched. You'll also find trailers for the movies we talked about and links to where to find the BBC anthology series A Ghost Story for Christmas on YouTube. That's where I've been watching them. We are taking our annual Yuletide break, so stay warm this holiday season and we'll be back in the new year. Till then, take care and stay sharp.